Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. Give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll I'll even kiss the men. Kiss those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. This podcast is brought to you by my ghost sponsors. Petroledger Financial Services, purveyor of all the finest outsourced oil and gas accounting and location of my day job, where I serve as the VP of Sales and Marketing. We do APA, or JIP, regulatory reporting, revenue dispersal, land and division order work, you name it. If it's upstream or midstream accounting, we've got you covered. There'll be a link in the show notes for our website. And also by friend of the show, Arc Media. Arc Media helps companies connect with customers through digital marketing like website, social media, ads, and SEO. That's search engine optimization. And basically, it's just outsourced marketing. If you don't have a marketing team or if you need some extra firepower for your existing team, Arc Media is who you want to call. Now, their web address will also be in the show notes. It's not my company, but they have done work for me in the past, and they have done great work. They are fantastic people to work with if you need some extra marketing. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I am the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your diminutive ATM of reckless opinion. Grab yourself a cup of coffee, and let's get into it. And tonight, I'm actually rocking with a, uh, a nice iced coffee. Yeah, yeah, it's a little hot today. It was like 94 degrees. It's a little warm. So I thought an iced coffee would be the thing to do. So let's have the inaugural sip. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Now we know the show's officially started. Okay, so obviously still the sponsor hunt continues. If anybody wants to sponsor the program, feel free to reach out to myself or business daddy Mark LaCour. Um, And other than that, let's just get into the program. We got some stuff to talk about tonight. So I was having a chat with a buddy of mine the other day. Uh, As many ideas for the show uh, come to me, and that is usually over a, a, a cigar and a scotch or a bourbon. And uh, it came up about China and Russia, two countries that seem to be really close buddies. In fact, my friend often says that he and I have the same thing that Russia and China have, and that's a no-limits friendship. Um, I'm probably technically accurate. Um, but it did get me thinking. It seems to me that that alliance is not as airtight as it sounds. And I'm going to go into this a little bit, and I know a number of people are probably thinking, well, they say they have a no-limits friendship. It sounds pretty clad iron. But I would actually argue that it's not. And in tonight's episode, I'm going to talk about why I think they are more natural enemies than allies. So, Russia and China often thought of as close friends. Um, But my, my argument is that's not necessarily correct. Just last year, in fact, China did make their statement that they have a no-limits friendship with Russia, which is the same kind of friendship you want if you're going to spend a week in Vegas with the bros. 
when Russia invaded Ukraine, they didn't condemn them in the UN. Uh, they were one of the handful of countries that didn't. They haven't applied any economic sanctions against Russia like most of the rest of the world has since the invasion started. Uh, China has, in fact, stated they believe Russia had completely valid security concerns regarding NATO enlargement. And they even say that while unfortunate, the Ukrainian conflict would already be over if it weren't for the West equipping Ukraine. Yes, Russia could just have it. It's fine. It'd already be done if the rest of us Western bastards weren't constantly giving them weapons and trying to let them fight to stay independent. Now, there are some things to keep in mind. Since this conflict started, China is now buying 60% of Russia's energy resources. Uh, see, I didn't even have to go far to find a tie into oil and gas there, did I? No, it was right there in the first first four minutes. Perfect. Anyway, 60% of their resources, they're buying of Russia's that they're selling. And Russia needs that because they've been cut off from the European market. The Russians and Chinese even flew joint fighter patrols back in May of 22 when President Biden was visiting Asian countries. Now, I know what you're thinking. Boy, they sure seem awfully chummy, Jordan. How exactly do you see them as being enemies? Well, here's the deal. They're both great powers with a desire to have more control over Asian policy and world affairs. For Russia, their chief tactical concern has always been controlling as much of the great European plains as possible. Uh, the plains extend from Germany, and they widen out all the way to the Ural Mountains, um, which the Ural Mountains, if you haven't looked at a map lately, is the dividing line between uh, Europe and Asia in Russia. And they've proven the Great European Plains to be one of, if not the greatest ground-based weakness that Russia has. I've talked more about this a few episodes back, but basically it's insanely difficult uh, to defend on planes because you have no natural obstacles to hinder enemy progress or to use uh, to hold a defensive posture. Think about it from Russia's perspective. Twice in the last century, they have been invaded on the ground through the Great European Plain. And if you go back further, it's happened multiple times. Go back to Napoleon and then various other instances. This is a big tactical issue. Now, at the height of the Soviet Union, Russia controlled the majority of the Great European Plain all the way up to Germany. They, they had half of Germany there. Now, in those, now, since those days, most of the former Soviet countries in Eastern Europe have become independent, and most of them at this point have joined NATO, an organization which is stated purpose when it was founded was to contain Soviet and Russian growth. If you're in Russia, that looks like a problem. Now look, in 20, uh, 2008, Russia invaded and took about 20% of the country of Georgia, a former Soviet nation. Among that 20% they took was a significant chunk of Georgia's coastline on the Black Sea. And we've talked before about how important controlling the Black Sea is for Russia, strategically. 2014, they invaded Crimea initially, and they tried to gobble up all of Ukraine this past year, uh, to push back NATO and U.S. encirclement, uh, ideally all the way to Carpathian Mountains, which would give them more control of the plains and a shorter line to defend should there ever be a ground war between Russia and the West. This is Cold War thinking, but Russia is led by a Cold Warrior. It's led by Vladimir Putin, a former KGB officer who served during the Cold War. Of course, he's still thinking about things from this Cold War 
basis where the West is still the enemy. And to be honest, our relations aren't good, so we are still the enemy if you're Russia. Okay. China, on the other hand, is in much the same boat, right? They're pushing back against what they see as encirclement by the U.S. in the Indo-Pacific region. Now, think about this. They have an energy weakness, which I've covered before. In fact, this episode is almost like a part three to my China's biggest weakness and, you know, the the folly of the Ukraine-Russian war. But China sees itself as pretty much getting surrounded by the U.S. They've got their energy weakness I've talked about. They've got Taiwan, which they consider a former breakaway colony, which has a nebulous defensive alliance with the U.S. And then you've got Japan, South Korea, India, the Philippines, and even moving closer to it, Vietnam, which are all becoming allied or already allied with the U.S., China sees itself, if they're looking at the map from their point of view, as being surrounded by countries that are more friendly to the United States than themselves. Now, remember, right now, 70% of China's energy uh, resources come through the Middle East and specifically the Straits of Malacca, which is why China's claiming most of the South China Sea with the Nine-Dash Line. Now, I've covered the Nine-Dash Line before and all the territorial clashes that has with various other nations in the South China Sea. Um, But also keep in mind, China's got territorial issues with India. There's a whole region along their border where they've had numerous low-level conflicts and hostilities over the years, and India is itself, as previously mentioned, a U.S.-friendly regime. So both of these countries feel like they're blocked in by the U.S. and its allies. They both have territorial concerns, which are diametrically opposed to the U.S. and Western interests. And they also complement each other's strengths and weaknesses quite well. China has an enormous enormous population base and a cash-rich economy. But China has very little oil or natural gas or minerals, which is why so much of China's energy resources have to be imported from abroad. Now, Russia... It's kind of the exact opposite. Its economy is tiny. As of 2023, and brace yourself for this, Russia's entire economy is smaller than that of New York City. Think about that for a minute. They also have a smaller and shrinking population than China by a mile. Less than 150 million people. Mexico has a larger population than Russia. And as I previously covered, Russia's population is shrinking, not growing. But what Russia does have is vast mineral, oil, and natural gas wealth. They have resources far beyond anything China has access to. In fact, most of their resources um, are even on the Asian side of Russia, right next to China. Russia has never had the capital or the manpower to exploit these resources fully, but China does. So... I know what you're thinking. So far, Jordan, all you're doing is convincing me of why this alliance sounds pretty bullproof, right? A senior Russian alliance? Fucking failsafe. It's perfect. What can go wrong? Well, not so fast. Historically, Russia and China have not gotten along all that well. This new no-limits friendship idea, it's historically a pretty new development, and it's a bit of an aberration. You see, Russia's history of conflict with the Asian powers goes as far back as the 13th century. Keep in mind, in the 13th century, 
all of Russia was conquered by the Mongolians. All right? And if you forward the clocks up, you've got the Russo-Japanese War of 1905, where Japan kicked the ever-living dog shit out of Russia. Meanwhile, China has not exactly been on easy street when it comes to their history with Europeans. To this day, China calls the years from 1839 to 1939 their century of humiliation. And it was called the century of humiliation because of all the territorial and economic concessions the Chinese were forced to agree to by the colonial powers of the world. The British Empire, the French, the Japanese, I think the Portuguese, pretty much Anyone and everyone was willing to have a go and bite off a piece of China. Remember back in 1997 when Britain finally returned Hong Kong to China? How do you think it got Hong Kong in the first place? The Chinese didn't just willingly give it up. It was eh, kind of at gunpoint. Uh, the only reason the city's still there is because the monarch and the prime minister of the United Kingdom couldn't quite figure out how to cart the fucker off to the British Museum. But the biggest, and I mean by a country mile, the single largest territorial humiliation that China ever faced in their century of humiliation came from the Russian Empire. And those lands, to this day, have never been returned. In 1858, the Qing Dynasty was in the midst of a brutal civil war, and... The Russian Tsar, sensing an opportunity, decided to march his armies along their border with China out there in Siberia. Now, keep in mind, the Russian Empire was a massive land-based empire, but they had very limited seaports, and they could never quite grow as extensively in other parts of the world like Britain or France or even Germany. They were pretty much limited because of their warm water port or their lack of warm water ports uh, that if they were going to grow, it was going to have to be on land to places nearby, hence all their conflicts with Poland and, and Finland and anywhere else they could try and get a foothold. At any rate, they see this opportunity with China. They see that China is in the midst of this gripping civil war, and so they march an army along the border. And the Tsar gave the, King Dyn the Qing dynasty an ultimatum. You can surrender a shit ton of territory to us, or you can get invaded and lose it anyway by a superior numeric and technologically more advanced Russian army. The Qing dynasty was in no position to fight back against superior Russian forces, and so they agreed. And so a massive tract of land larger than present-day Ukraine called Outer Manchuria was handed over to the Russians. Now, the Russians have wasted no time in cultivating that land. They've put some of their largest cities there, including one particularly important city called Vladivostok. It is the only major Russian naval base on the Pacific that is ice-free most of the year. And it's down on the very tippy bottom right next to China. Now, this treaty also locked China out of the Sea of Japan and limits Chinese naval access to just the South China Sea. That's why the South China Sea, among other reasons, is so important. It's their easiest access out to the world's oceans because all of their northern coastline was gobbled up by Russia back in the mid-1800s. I don't think this is something they've just forgotten about either. Okay, in the 1960s, Russian and Chinese relations were starting to come to a, a bit of a low point. There was a lot of flaring up, and the primary reason for that 
is because like any good religion, there was a difference in interpretation. You see, the Russians and the Soviets had a interpretation of Marxist Leninist capitalism, or excuse me, communism, and the Chinese were creating a divergent interpretation of Marxist Leninist ideals. And these were based on Chinese interpretations and what Mao Zedong thought was the way that communism should work. And the Russians weren't really thrilled with this Chinese take on communism. <clears throat> so they had a lot of beef starting to flare up. In fact, if you look back in history books, it's called the russo sino split or the soviet sino split, which is when these two allies, the two largest communist you know, blocks in the world, parted ways as close allies. So in the 1960s, they've got these tensions, right? And Mao, the founder of the People's Communist Party of China, even said to the press when relations with Russia and China were hitting a low point that Russia had taken outer Manchuria at gunpoint and China would never forgive them and never forget. Now, this is in the 1960s. The leader of the Communist Party, the founder of the Communist Party, someone who is kind of a godhead to the modern-day People's Republic of China, he called it out. He wants Greater Manchuria back. Now, in response, in 1969, the premier of the Soviet Union declared the Brezhnev Doctrine, which stated, and i got to love the balls on this, the Soviet Union reserves the right to replace any communist government that Moscow felt was not practicing proper communism, and that this included China. So, Mao decided to up the ante. He decided to invade an island on a river along the border with the Soviet Union in response to this Brezhnev doctrine, basically a daring them to do something about it. And this was not a small thing. The Chinese deployed half a million troops to their side of the border. Both sides fired tens of thousands of rounds of artillery at each other, and it got so bad the Soviet Union was even considering and threatened a nuclear strike on China if they didn't back down. The concern in the Soviet Union was that the Chinese army was so large that the only possible way to stop it would be to launch a nuclear attack. Now, eventually, backroom talks and, and, and cooler heads prevailed and the fighting died down, but only just. Now, in 1994 and in 1997, and I've talked about this previously, Russia agreed to and confirmed Ukraine's borders, right? We've talked about it, I think, on the last episode, maybe the one before. Now, they've probably ignored that agreement, um, and they've argued that they can conquer Ukraine for a couple of reasons. One, because Ukraine was historically a Russian territory, so it shouldn't fucking matter. And two, ah, there's an awful lot of what are basically Russians there anyway, so we should just be able to take that back. Now, those two arguments are highly important when you think back to Greater Manchuria, and we will come back to that. Because effectively... This has opened a Pandora's box. If Russia can justify the invasion of Ukraine because it was historically Russian and there were a lot of Russian people there, quote-unquote, then why can't China justify retaking outer Manchuria? But this isn't the only point of friction between Russia and China. Several post-Soviet states in Central Asia, including Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, and Tajikistan— have all been drifting further from Russia's orbit since the fall of the Soviet Union and closer to China. 
China has been spending years cultivating relationships with these countries through their Belt and Road Initiative, which I've discussed before. But they've invested a lot of time and money in these countries because these roads and these these waypoints are all going to be through a lot of those former Soviet countries. And these are countries that, after the fall of the Soviet Union, were fairly closely aligned with Russia. They joined the CTSO, which was Russia's version of NATO. It was basically all the former Soviet countries forming a defensive alliance, even though they were independent, all this sort of thing. But now, economically, they're they're really starting to get tied into China. China's bringing in the money. They're bringing in the roads. They're bringing in the trade. It's important. Hell, at this point, 15% of China's natural gas is coming from former Soviet countries that aren't Russia. And that's only in just the past couple of years. They've started switching their contracts from buying Russian natural gas to buying natural gas from Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan and Turkmenistan, which is taking money out of Russia's pocket and putting it into the hand of these former Soviet states. These are states that used to be subservient to Moscow, well, now they're not, and now they're getting some of that good Chinese money slipped into their pockets. Well, that's going to be a problem. Russia's got very few people at this point willing or able to buy their energy resources, and as we've already covered, they're basically just a petro-state. And so they're also involved in a war that's consuming cash like a bottomless pit. This is an issue. In fact, China has overtaken Russia in trade volume with every single one of Russia's former Soviet states in Asia. Yeah, that's an issue. And think about it from China's point of view. They can't simply ignore Central Asia. It's too critical to them overcoming their weakness at the Strait of Malacca. Since most of their energy, 70% of it, comes through the Straits of Malacca, they have to find a way around it. The Belt and Road Initiative is their way around it. So they have to cultivate these relationships with Central Asia, and Russia is just going to have to deal with that as far as Xi Jinping and the People's Communist Party are concerned. It's critical to them overcoming this Achilles heel we talked about. Meanwhile, as long as China is taking control of Central Asia, it deprives Russia of trade and business that they deeply need right now, which is a point of friction. So far, Moscow has been forced to accept Chinese influence in Central Asia for the time being, in exchange for basically not having to worry about China doing anything too crazy to them while they focus on their Ukrainian conflict. But the question is, how long can Putin realistically allow Russia's hold in Central Asia to erode to growing Chinese ambitions? It's one thing to say that we're buddy-buddy right now, but at some point, Putin, and I guarantee he already knows this, realizes that there is a very significant tip in the seesaw of this relationship. Hell, in 2012, Tajikistan allowed China to place military forces in their country to stop Islamic militant forces from operating in the area. They even gave China authorization to establish a permanent military base in their country. Now, you might be saying, okay, okay, sure, I guess that's a thing, but keep in mind, Tajikistan is a member of the Russian alliance, the CSTO. Part of that agreement says that Russia gets to be, one, made aware of any foreign forces operating in your country, and two, they have to co-sign on it. Tajikistan didn't even bother telling Russia. Those cheeky little bastards. So now there's a Chinese base there, and Russia can do fuck all about it. 
but perhaps the biggest looming conflict between Russia and China is water. You see, China houses about 20% of the entire human population. However, statistically, it only controls about 7% of the world's surface fresh water. That's a bit of an imbalance. Now, keep in mind that around 80% of China's limited internal water supplies come from further south, the Yangtze River being a rather important one. In 2012, a record drought nearly completely dried the Yangtze River out in several locations. You can find <coughs> pictures of it online. It was shocking. And it's a harbinger of the crisis to come. Because if you're China and you're looking around trying to figure out where are we going to get more water for our billion-plus people, there aren't a lot of options. You can look to India, I suppose, but they've got over a billion people. You've already got a territorial dispute, and quite frankly, you don't want a war with another country with a billion people, and the land border between India and China is the Himalayan mountains. So that's not really going to be easy or workable. This means the only option you have if you're looking for new sources of water, it's up north. Now, keep in mind that nearly 400 million people live in and around Beijing. That is the largest single concentration in China. And that's one of the most, outside of the Gobi Desert, one of the more arid regions. It does not have enough natural water to supply that without getting piped in from the south or or rivers being diverted and dammed and that sort of thing. So they have a crisis brewing this century. They've got to find access to more water to feed this population. And the only place to find more water is Siberia, where there's oodles of it, specifically Lake Bacall. Now, Lake Bacall, in case you don't know, happens to be a massive, super deep freshwater lake not that far from the Chinese border, as it should happen. Now, <clears throat> that area happens to be rather underpopulated, and it also, um, the lake itself isn't really used by the Russians for anything. So it's just kind of sitting there, not doing anything. What would Joe Biden say? You know, what would he say here? Guess what? It's good for the economy. Helps everyone. Hurts nobody. We should take it. Yeah. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> now... To give you an idea of just how much fresh water is hanging out in Lake Bacall, it is a very deep lake, and it's a rather long lake, and it has so much fresh water in it that it has more water by volume than all of the Great Lakes in North America combined. That's a fuck ton of fresh water. Secondly, if the entire human population used all of their water supplies coming strictly from Lake Bacall, it would take care of the entire human population today for 50 years. That's a shit ton of fresh water. Amazing. Cool. And it's just sitting there, not that far from the Chinese border, just hanging out. Now, China's been eyeing this for a little while. This is not a shocking new revelation. In fact, back in um, 2010, a Chinese company started buying land around the southern border of the lake, and in 2017, the company stated they were going to build a pipeline for drinking water from Lake Bacall to China to help solve this impending future water crisis. The local Russians rightly lost their shit and rioted. In fact, the backlash from the Russian people against the Chinese taking water from their lake and 
drinking it dry as they were concerned, was so bad that the Russian government had to step in and force China to stop their plans about making a pipeline or buying any further land. Putin physically, I mean, you know, he didn't have to go out there shirtless on a horse, but maybe. But he had to actually tell Beijing, no, you can't do this. We're not going to allow it. And that's the first time in a while that Russia's told China no to something. So, Putin's been forced to take a stand against Xi Jinping. And the other thing to keep in mind is they've also had to open up the Russian Far East for the past decade to allow more Chinese workers in because the Far East, where all these vast mineral wealth pools of oil and natural gas and, and, and all the minerals that they want, they don't have the workers there to, to mine it. You know, that area is very sparsely populated. And what's more, it's only gotten more depopulated since COVID and the draft where they've hauled tons of people to the West in order to fight in Ukraine. There's fewer and fewer people there to exploit these resources. So Russia's been forced to let more Chinese in. In the past couple of years, over 300,000 Chinese have migrated to Russia, and specifically in the outer Manchuria region, to start working in, in Russian shops there and help mine things and produce oil and gas and all of that. And remember what we said earlier. If the majority of the population in Ukraine is, uh, quote-unquote, Russia, then Russia gets taken over, right? Well, does that mean as more people migrate from China to outer Manchuria, they get to have it back? My guess is Putin wouldn't like that, but that's certainly the argument one could make here. Listen, at this stage of the game... Beijing wants Putin in power because right now, Russia's in a situation where they have to acquiesce to most things that China wants, and that's good. But at some point, this relationship is going to become so lopsided, if things don't change, that Russia will become the junior partner to China. And China will be in a position to do what Russia did to them nearly 200 years ago, and that is say... Yeah, we're going to need a lot of land from you guys, specifically Outer Manchuria and the region around Lake Bacall. We're going to need that, and if you don't sign on, maybe we just invade you and take it anyway. Sound familiar? Yeah. <coughs> and Putin's no fool. Putin knows the history. Putin understands the strategy here. They can say they're best friends right now all they want, but the reality of it is they are allies of convenience, and there are too many points of friction between Russia and China, for this little marriage made in heaven to last. Sure, they're the power couple of nations right now, the Brangelina, if you will. But that sloppy, messy, ugly divorce, oh, it's a coming. And you heard it here. Well, that's what we got time for tonight. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And, um, yeah, yeah, that's what we got. Well... As usual, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you that this is Jordan Driscoll, and I'll see you guys on the next one. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.